Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Faith Reformed Baptist Church. We are continuing our study in the book of the Revelation. We are now beginning chapter 3, and we'll be looking at the letter that was written by our Lord uh, to the church at Sardis. And this is a, a city that is in Asia Minor. As you recall, this is the, uh, a book that's called the Apocalypse. The Apocalypse is a word meaning something that has been revealed. Now, since these are letters, I think I would like to just kind of set the stage a little bit. I have a granddaughter that uh, wanted to uh, create a picture for another of one of my granddaughters, and so she wrote this little letter, and she drew this picture, and uh, she wanted to send it. And so we got a stamp, we addressed it, put it in the mail. And I'm sure that the other granddaughter to whom it was sent, when she received it, was all excited. Remember the time when you were excited to receive mail? Now you go out into the mailbox and you have to sift through it. Trash, 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 this is a bill. Trash, this is a bill. But if you had a letter that was actually lived and written by a loved one, you would immediately set all the other letters aside. You would go and sit down, get yourself some good light and glasses at work. You would read that letter with great anticipation. And so today, I would like to have you anticipate what is being said by the Spirit to the churches. I'm going to read these verses again. They're not very many. So I want these words in your mind as we, as we start. And to the angel of the church at Sardis write, and we might as well put our church name in there. It may not be true about us, but there are some things that are true. The words of him who hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You will have, you, 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 yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Now the doctrine I want you to take away from this today could be a number of doctrines, but I've chosen one. And it's really not a doctrine, it's more of a goal that I would like to accomplish it is something that every one of us should understand. The church should please our Christ before it pleases anything else, before it pleases the world, before it pleases our families. We should have the goal of pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that, let's move on. We have talked about the previous four letters to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira. They all had their good things. They all had their bad things. But as we start today, I want you to notice that the church at Sardis, the Lord begins without a commendation. He goes right in to a problem. And this is one of the few churches that we will read where the Lord actually doesn't say, I am so pleased with you about this and this and this. No, he immediately says, you have a big problem. You are dead. 
So let's go verse by verse, and I want to make sure that we have an understanding of what the words mean, and then we'll get into the practical application. Today I have only one practical application, and I hope that you'll be able to benefit from it. The, um, before we begin to read the verses, I would like to give you a background of this particular city. The, uh, the city of Sardis is now the modern-day city called Sart. I couldn't point it out on a map other than it's in, in the center of Asia Minor, which is about 50 miles east of, um, of um, Pergamum. Okay? And so it, we're, we're traveling you know, in a horseshoe shape, like if this was the Asia Minor, we would be going up the coast and then over to the west and then down again. Kind of, a, kind of a, a horseshoe shape. And so this is a city that's away from the coast. It doesn't have a lot of ships. It doesn't have a port. It's on a place that's situated with a high cliff, but it's separated. The city itself is like separated into two cities where there's a big valley and there's a lot of trade going on there. But this particular city, since it has two different centers, one is a fortress sitting on high, on, on top of a high cliff. The other is where the people would live, down below, where the merchants would be, where the people would uh, raise their crops, and then when uh, 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 danger would come, then they would all retreat to the city, all re retreat to the fortress on top. Now the city was very, it had a, a great reputation for having this particular fortress that seemed to be invincible. It was like a sheer cliff on one side, and the other side was narrowed down by a pass which could be easily defended with a small number of soldiers. And so, basically, you could hide within this fortress very easily and, uh, and outlast any type of opposing enemy. And so they had a great reputation of being invincible. However, back in about 550 B.C., Cyrus the Great of Persia wanted this place. He wanted everything. And so when he came to defend or to, to attack this place, uh, at the time, there was a man by the name of King Croesus. Croesus. And he was famously rich, and so I'm sure Cyrus wanted, his, uh, wanted everything that he had. And so the, the, the reputation that this king had and notice that I'm using the word reputation a lot because this is exactly what I'm addressing in my message concerning the church in Sardis. They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. But King Croesus had a reputation of having everything he touched turned to gold. Does that sound familiar? A little bit like Midas. It was uh, recorded that uh, the rivers that went through this particular city was heavily laden with uh, gold dust and so on. But this man became excessively wealthy, and whenever an enemy would come against him, he would take his people and retreat up into the fortress, and they would be defended there. Well, after uh, he knew that Cyprus, or, um, Cyrus was going to come, he went to the Oracle of Delphi. And you may have heard of that oracle. There's very famous for, for soothsaying and for prophecies and different type of fortune-telling. And uh, the oracle at Delphi did give him a prophecy concerning how he would uh, confront Cyrus the Great. The, Del the, uh, the oracle said this, You are going to make a decision on whether you have to cross the river in your town, the river Halis, and if you do, you're going to destroy a great kingdom. 
Well, a little bit like Chinese fortunes, they have a way of being true in any situation. And so the king took heart with this. He took his army, crossed, he went out of his fortress, crossed the river, met with the armies, and he destroyed a great nation, his own. He retreated back into the fortress and decided to try to just stick it out, thinking that no one could get him there. Well, one of his soldiers that was put upon the wall of where the cliff was, the side that could not be uh, 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 breached by an enemy army, the soldier accidentally dropped his helmet. It tumbled down the cliff. Well, he didn't know he was being watched by the enemy. He just kind of looked around, crawled down the cliff, picked up his helmet, climbed back up, and took his post again. Well, once the men of Cyrus's army saw with their own eyes that this place could be breached, they had a plan of attack. And when they weren't suspecting, the army attacked from the invincible side and conquered the city. That was about 550 BC. Now, once this has been done, it becomes a historical event. It wasn't until 250 years later when another man by the name of um, uh, Antiochus, you may have heard of him, Antiochus of Syria, he wanted to take this city too. And he knew his history. He knew that it had been taken from the side that seemed to be invincible. And so he did the very same thing. Of course, for some reason, the people of Sardis felt that this was just impossible to do. They lived in this fortress. They looked at the cliff that was protecting them and say, no one would ever dare to do this. Well, for 250 years, no one did. But Antiochus said, if he can do it, I can do it. And the city was taken again. It wasn't until about 20 or 25 years later after that when the Roman armies came and they took this city. And it was all the way up to the time of the writing of the letter that the Romans were still in power. And so during the time of the writing of this letter, the Romans had siege, or shall we say the Romans had taken uh, ownership of this particular city. Now, excavations have proved in this city that there was a very strong Jewish presence they uncovered a very large synagogue. And so for a long time, the Jews had their presence felt in the city of Sardis. And so what we feel or what we can kind of read when, when we look through this uh, six verses and see what's being said about this church, you get the feeling that this church was at peace with everyone, and they were. It seemed as though there was a very strong Roman government presence there there was a very strong presence of pagan worshipers there and a very strong presence of unbelieving Jews. And yet the church at Sardis had a reputation that was good and that they were alive. And so my question is, why did they have that reputation? Why did they have the reputation that they were so good? Who was giving them this reputation? We'll get into that in our uh, practical application. So let's go to the verses now. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, and you have the reputation of being alive and are dead. So the first thing I notice here is that we have a description of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I'm the one writing to you. I am the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, I'm not a big uh, 
believer in numerology. If you don't know what that is, it just has the idea of looking at numbers in a, in a, in a vision that's apocalyptic and giving that number some type of meaning. Well, I can see it. I can understand that that might be a good way to approach this. Because seven seems to be the number of completeness. Seven seems to be a number associated with God. Uh, I have seen other numbers, such as three, like the Godhead, uh, and other numbers, such as ten, which has been associated with um, uh, Gentiles and so on. But I'm not a big believer in that. However, in this particular case, I'd have to say that when we look at the seven spirits of God, I think we're really looking at God, Jesus Christ, having the Holy Spirit that looks at the needs of these seven churches. And then he says, the seven spirits of God, as though to say, I, the Holy Spirit, can see the needs of all my churches. And he has the seven stars in his hand, such as all the pastors, all the elders. I have them in my hand, and I have the Holy Spirit, all their needs understood by God. And then he sends out the knowledge, I know you and I know your works, and my spirit understands your need. And I know where you've fallen, and I know where you have stood. And so it seems logical to me that the idea that we are looking at the seven spirits of God, meaning that, that it means something along these lines, that God's Holy Spirit knows our needs too. He knows everything about us. And if we have a problem and a need in our church, he will give us knowledge from the word and guidance. And that the leaders in this church, the ones who are um, been given the responsibility to teach the word and to guide people and to pri provide um, instruction that they are being aided by the Holy Spirit and they are in his hand. Thus, God shepherding his people through the gifts that he gives his church, through the elders, through the teachers, through the deacons, and helping our congregation. We can depend upon a God that he is complete in all his doings. And so that's what I see in the first part. And he says this, I know your works. Now he says that to all the churches. But you see, he usually says, I know your works and you have done this well. But he, now he says, I know your works, that people think you're alive, but you are dead. And so it's a little different in this, in this case. It's like coming uh, as a, like a supervisor, coming down to a group of employees and uh, they, they kind of know they've been slacking off. And then the door opens and the manager walks in and says, I know what you've been doing. I know what you have been doing. And so everyone says, oh, good. He's here to reward us. I don't think so. And so when the people of Sardis read this letter, and I'm sure they had a reputation of a lie, they may have said in their own minds, oh, but maybe the Lord has heard of our reputation and is here to praise us. But instead, he says, you think and you have a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. And so when we hear the words from our Lord, I know your works, what does that bring to our hearts? What does that bring to our mind? Do we say, oh no? Or do we say, I am so, so thankful that we have a God that understands and knows our works. And that you have a reputation of alive and are dead. Now, reputations are something that are important, are they not? You don't want a bad reputation. You would want a good reputation. 
And so in this case, the Lord is saying, you have a certain reputation. The reputation is this, that you are alive. Well, I suppose that's a good reputation for a church, is it not? But my question is, who is holding that opinion? Surely not the Holy Spirit. And are other churches holding this? Well, I don't know. Are government officials holding that opinion? Where is this reputation coming from? Are the pagan leaders holding this reputation? Saying, oh, I know about those people. Yeah, they're good, good folks. I like them. They're good. They're, they're alive. I mean, just look at what's happening over there. I wish we could do that at our pagan assembly. And the Roman, the Roman government. Oh, we see no risk or we, we don't worry about them. And so it is interesting to see that the people of Sardis, very similar to historical Sardis, was very comfortable in the reputation they had that they were invincible, that no one could attack them, no one could take them down. And yet repeatedly it happened. And so now we have this reputation that they were alive, but they are dead. What more devastating news do you need than to be told by the Lord Jesus Christ that you are dead. If you recall, he didn't use that word very many times, our Lord, other than preaching that you are dead in sins, like the Apostle Paul would teach. But there are times when he used this word, instead of saying, um, uh, you are dead, he said, you're sleeping. Let's go to the next verse, and then we'll get into that a little bit more. The next verse reads like this. Wake up, and strengthen what remains is and, and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Now it's interesting that the Lord would say to the dead, wake up. But if you recall, he said that about Lazarus, did he not? He knew that Lazarus was dead, but then he told his disciples, let's go now because Lazarus is, is sleeping. He says, well, if he's asleep, then let him sleep. And he said, no, 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 he's dead. And so when he arrived, he woke him out of the grave. And remember the daughter of Jairus? When he was called to help her, he said, don't be afraid. She's sleeping. And they even laughed him to scorn. They even mocked him, knowing that this girl was dead. But he went up and he said, arise. Now he calls to the church after saying that they are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, this is a message to the church. We're going to see that later on in these passages that he's going to say, there are some names that are still able to say, I, my garments have not been soiled. They are still spotless. But to those who are dead, he is saying, there is time to repent. And he's giving them warning to repent. So wake up. Doesn't this remind you? of the warnings given to the maidens when they said, oh, you don't know when the bridegroom is coming, so be ready. Be ready. Have your oils filled with, I mean, your lamp filled with oil. Be, be aware. Be watchful. But instead, they went to sleep. And when they woke up, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have trouble sleeping. But I know this, when I'm asleep and I wake with a start, it's like, what in the world? My mind is confused. I don't even know where I'm at. Sometimes it's like, Am I on the couch? Am I in the bed? Am I, where am I? Well, if the time should ever come that a church is unaware of when their Christ 
is coming and asking and teaching and so on, that they have to wake from a start knowing that their Lord is here. Well, they might say to themselves, is he here in judgment? Is he here bringing Jerusalem out of heaven? What is going on? Because I'll guarantee that there's only two reasons that the Lord would come to his church, and that is to judge or to bless. And I'll tell you, the greatest blessing is be when he brings the new Jerusalem out of the sky. And so, wake up and strengthen what, is, what remains and is about to die. And he says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. There's nothing worse than something that has been completed, been, been started and not completed. How many have projects at home right now? I mean, how many do you have? Projects that you start and they're just not done. You know what they do? They take up room, they take up your time, they take up your tools, they take up your space, and yet they're not done. My wife is very good at making these cinnamon rolls. But I'll tell you what, if you start eating the cinnamon rolls before they're done, you will not like them. If you consistently start things that do not complete, then they are not done. Our good works must be complete. We must love the Lord God with our heart, love our neighbor as ourselves, and complete them. We must start and finish. They are not complete. That's what the Lord said. They are not real. They are not actual. They have been started. So, that's what we need to do. We need to complete our works before God. They are in His sight. They are not that way in His sight. Verse number three. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So remember. There is in a remembrance of all churches that are true churches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is something that we should keep in our minds at all times. We are stewards of the gospel of God. We must remember and go back to the very first works that we've had. To love God with all our heart. To preach His gospel as clearly as we can. To keep it. And if we have not done that, we must instantly repent of it. Our church must keep this in mind. We must keep what we've received. We, if, we do, if we do not do that, we must repent of it. And he says, if you will not wake up, if we refuse to repent, then we will remain spiritually dead, dead to God. It's like being in a dead sleep to God. If you remain, you will not know when God comes back. You will not know when Christ comes back. It will be like a thief. And some people have said, you mean he's going to come to steal something? No, 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 no. It's like a thief would come. He comes when he's not expected. That's why he's a good thief. He comes when no one expects him to be. And when would that happen? When you're asleep. When you're unaware. And he will come against us. Now, what's that mean, against us? That means that he's come to correct us. Now, those who are not saved, he comes against in a very horrible way. But those of us who have strayed from God and are spiritually asleep, he comes to, rep to reprimand you. So verse number three is, is that he will come when we are not expecting him. Verse number four, you will have, uh, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me for they are worthy. 
Now, it doesn't say here that there is a minority of people in the church and for their sake and so on. It doesn't say that. He actually says there are a few names. Now, what that tells me is that it's not as though he has some type of vague understanding of who is still alive. He knows them by name. He knows every individual. He knows in a church, even that's dead, that there will be people that have been loyal to him, that are able to keep the gospel clear, and they live their lives outwardly and have separated themselves from sin and are not ashamed to associate themselves with their Savior, with their God. Because in the next verse, he's going to say something like this. Since you have lived your life openly before me, I will confess your name before my Father and before the angels. And so, since there are those who have not soiled themselves, that is, their garments, their reputation should not be, oh, they're just alive, but their reputation should be that they are holy, that they walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he will walk with them. And it says that they are worthy. Do not confuse this idea that they are worthy to be in the presence of God by their own righteousness to justify themselves. No. It has to do with a man who knows that he's been justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ to walk with his God humbly. To walk with his God humbly. And that's what we need to do. What more should we need than to know our God and to walk with him humbly? So we need to say to ourselves, if you're in a sleepy church, then you need to continue to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. In this day and age, there might be several churches in town. You may want to change your church. But if, this, but if your church is still the only church in town, then it means that you need to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number five. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, Whenever I read about wearing a white robe, my first thought always goes to imputed righteousness as a gift from Christ. It always seems to me that it's so important that the gospel be made clearly made to sinners where the sinner can understand that he will be presented to God perfect because of the righteousness given to him. And so you put on the righteousness of Christ like it was a robe. But in this case, it's not the case. In this case, you walk before the world. There is a reputation that is to be made, and that a reputation is very important. God's church and God's people represent him. They are ambassadors, and they need to be seen as those who work the works of God, those who walk in righteousness, those who work at good works. And it says, these people that do that, I will walk with them. They are worthy. They are my friends. I will be with them. I will own them. Why? Because they have owned me. They will walk with, in white garments. I will never blot out his name in the book of life. I can remember talking with other uh, preachers about this way back when I was a younger man. And they said, they used, they used this particular verse right here. I will never blot out his name out of the book of life to prove that they could be blotted out. Well, he would never have said that unless he could. It's like, why would you take a statement so clearly, so easily understood, that he would say, those who walk with me 
will never have their names blotted out. Always remember this. A person that wants to believe the wrong things will always find it because the Lord will always give them opportunity to do what is wrong. It's just, it's just the way their Bible is written. I'm telling you this. This statement is so clear. God will never remove us from the book of life. Your name was there before the foundation of the world. And you may say to yourself with your reasoning, Oh, I couldn't do anything to lose it. So what difference does it make? I'm telling you, that sounds like someone who is dead. What does he say? You have a reputation that you're alive, but you are dead. Be cautious about how you approach the Holy God. You are to humble yourselves before him and be in awe of what he does. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. In Matthew 10, we read this. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also were acknowledged before my Father who is in heaven. Whosoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. That is a clear statement. We need to own Christ here to our families, to our loved ones. We should not be ashamed of our Heavenly Father. We should not be ashamed of our Christ. He says, you own me, and I will own you. And the last verse, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every need that we have, the Holy Spirit understands it. And he is going to help us. It means this, you need to pay attention. There's something worthy to be learned here. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what, what needs to be done for us, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. So listen to what he says. So now, let's get into the practical application. When I first read this, it seemed very sad to me that Christ is writing to these people and the very first thing he says is that they are dead. Now, that strikes some people differently. Sometimes people, they'll read that and they'll get, they'll get angry. Other people will read that and, and they'll get upset. But... The first reaction I had was that I was so sorry for them. I was sad for them. And then eventually I became a little perturbed with them. And so we can see that there is something here that Christ is actually wanting us to, to look at ourselves. Are we asleep? Are we the dead ones? We need to take real account of ourselves. He could have said it this way. Listen, I know your works. You are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Does that sound like what he just... No, I left out something. Did you notice what I, what I left out? He said this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. Now, to me, that's a strange way of telling someone. You have a reputation of being alive. But the reputation is not real. The reputation is not true. Reputations are important. It is told, it is told us in the Proverbs and in many of the Psalms that a man's reputation is very important. And you do not want to be guilty of soiling or destroying another man's name or of destroying or soiling another man's reputation. It is a good thing to have a good reputation. It seemed to me like the reputation of being alive would be a good reputation. And yet the Lord 
is saying, you have a reputation you do not deserve. Why? Why do they have this reputation? Who gave it to them? Was it other elders? Was it other churches? Was it the members themselves? Do you really think that their neighbors came up with that? Do you really think that they would come and say, you know, you know those group of people? I kind of like them. And yet I am the guy at my pagan worship. I want, you know, you know, why would I, why would I not be disparaged with those Christians? If you were a Roman governor, if you were Pilate, would you eventually say, wow, these, these people are, they're harmless. What about all the reputations that can be heaped upon a church? What about the unbelieving Jews? They seem to have no problem with them. So when a church enjoys the praise of the world, I would say there might be a warning. It might be a symptom. It's difficult for a church not to be glad when someone thinks well of them. But it does open up the pathway to be manipulated, especially when the church or the people they kind of like the idea of being liked. They kind of like the idea of having a good reputation. And I'm not saying if we deserve the reputation, I'm so happy for us. But if we get a reputation that the world loves us, the government loves us, all the neighbors that hate God love us, then I would have to say, are we sure that we are being told the truth by our neighbors? Do you know what a flatterer is? A flatterer. A flatterer is someone that will tell you nice things about yourself, but secretly doesn't like you. That's what a flatterer is, a sycophant. Someone that is willing to tell you nice things. And then you have this rapport, like, oh yeah, they like me, they love me. But the world, when it comes to Christ and comes to God, the world hates Christ. Now, be cautious with this. I want you to understand that Paul has told us with very clear instructions, if it is at all possible to live peacefully with men, then do so. But we also learn that if we must choose who to obey, we must please God rather than man. We must obey God rather than man. And so the world has a way of attacking the church. And not everyone conquered Sardis. Sardis was impregnable and invincible to many armies, with the exception of a few. What doesn't work by violence can work by flattery. Be cautious when the world speaks well of us. You know, we have to be careful about that. The world will praise the church in order to make the church shall we say, addicted to it. If I had a child and I was afraid he might be addicted to drugs, I wouldn't say to myself, I'll just make sure he doesn't have any money you know, to buy drugs. I'll make sure that he's poor enough not to buy it. Well, what I would not understand is that drug dealers usually give out the first few uh, you know, bags of dope for free. You see, the world will give their praise for free. But it's not always going to be free. There'll come a time when you still want the world to praise you that they will have to ask something in return. Why do you have to be so cantankerous when it comes to this doctrine, to that doctrine? Why do you have to preach against 
this and that. We need to be careful. If we become warm to the world, it's easily, it can easily cause us to become cold to God, cold to Christ. If we please the world and are becoming indifferent to the truth of the gospel, then the world may have a good reputation for us. We could be heartless in our love to God if our hearts belong to the world. We could become formalistic to where we only have the actions and we are asleep in our souls to the Lord. And so the Lord has, a, has addressed this in his teaching when he was here in the flesh. And he's done so in the Sermon on the Mount. If you recall, remember what he said Beware of the practice of your righteousness before people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward when your Father who is in heaven. Now this phrase, practicing your righteousness, he doesn't just stop in that one verse. He went on to say, be careful when you give your money. Be careful when you help the needy. Be careful when you pray. Be careful when you fast. If you take your money and you say, I'm about to give, everyone watch. Or if you say, I'm about to pray, everyone listen. Or I'm about to fast, look how sorrowful I look. If you have a church that goes through its formalities to be seen only, and you get, shall we say, satisfaction from being seen in this, then that is your reward. And that is exactly what the world would have us do. They would want us to be satisfied with their reputation saying, oh yeah, they're good. Leave them alone. But I don't want us to be in that position. I want us to be only tender and, shall we say, responsive to Christ alone. The world may give us a bad reputation. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of us. I've had, I've had people slander me. It doesn't matter. I've had people, I've seen people slander the gospel horribly. It doesn't matter. God is God. And when Christ says, I am well pleased with my good and faithful servant, and that is what should motivate us. That is what brings us to the front. And so, let me, reach, let me read again verse number five. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So let me read these verses from Matthew chapter 10. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear, fear him who can destroy the both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Are not one of them that fall to the ground apart from your father's knowledge? But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are, the more, you are more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whosoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. It is God that we should reverence. It is God's praise that we should seek. Any reputation that we have 
must come from the lips of our Lord. Do not covet the praise of this world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we ask now that you alone be our exceeding great reward. We pray, Lord, that you alone would be the goal of our hearts. May Christ be formed in every one of us. If we are asleep, if we are spiritually dead, we pray, Lord, shake us and wake us up. Bring us to our senses. Help us to complete our works. Help us to do all those things from beginning to end. May we love you completely to the finish. May we love our neighbors completely to the finish. May we be strong. May we have convictions that say, it is the Lord who has made us and not we ourselves. Oh Lord, please help your people in this way. We want to please only you. And so we pray, Lord, be the appetite of our hunger. Be the smell that we say, oh, the Lord is so good. It is like fresh bread in our, no in our nostrils. Please, Lord, may you satisfy every longing we have. And so we pray, may we only seek your praise. We ask this in our Lord's name. Amen.